Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventure since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And this episode we will discuss Detective Comics number 571, the third issue from the regular creative team of Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis, and Paul Neary. Now this issue features one of my favorite Batman villains, the Scarecrow. Are you a Scarecrow fan, Ryan? I am a Scarecrow fan, I, and I've been thinking about it, wondering when that originated, and I think I became a Scarecrow fan after Batman the Animated Series. Now, mm. I knew who he was from the old Super Friends TV show, but I, as striking as he kind of looked on that, I, he didn't leave a lasting impression. And I would have mm. met him in comics the first time, I think in Batman 457, which was the new Robin costume issue. But... Neither of them really left an impression. I think I think the comics at first, part of it, and we'll talk about this later, is a little bit of his his color scheme. But his first appearance in Batman the Animated Series really sort of leapt out to me, and I was like, I've never thought about this character this way, but I really like him. And yeah, yeah. So I, that's probably when I became a, a Scarecrow fan. Yeah, I, I first encountered him on the Challenge of the Super Friends, and, and you're right. I think he's probably the least utilized member of the Legion of Doom. I mean, he basically, I can think of one episode where he has, like, crows come down and grab, like, Robin and maybe Batman, and they take them off. They grab them by their capes and take off with them or something. But that's the only thing that leaps out at me that he ever did other than cackle, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I saw him in the comics was Detective Comics number 503. Uh, that's from June 1981, and uh, it had a great Jim Starlin cover where Batman is a scarecrow propped up in the night. It's real creepy. Robin and Batgirl are running towards him and uh, they look all scared and it's in this, you know, farm field and but the story inside's by Jerry Conway and Don Newton, so you can't go wrong there. And and that one, Crane actually switches up his M.O., and he makes everyone fear Batman. And even Alfred, Robin, and Batgirl, it's like they're repulsed by the sight of him. Huh. It's, it's a really cool story. Then after that, uh, the thing that really clinched it for me with the Scarecrow was the Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians episode, The Fear. Uh, where the scarecrow makes Batman relive his origin yeah. in Crime Alley. Yeah, that's a that that's like the best episode of any version of the Super Friends. Period. Uh, so you know that that made quite an impression on me. So from then on, I was I was a pretty big Scarecrow fan. So last night I did I, I was sort of kind of going back through some of the stories of of his that I remembered. There is another comic, and I don't really like the story, but I really like the art. Uh, it's Batman issue 296, and it's Sal Amendola drawing the Scarecrow. Um, mm-hmm. And after Alan Davis, who we will talk about on this issue, I think Amendola's rendition of the Scarecrow might be my second favorite. Uh, mm-hmm. It's I, I really like what he did with the character. There was like a lot of interesting things, especially some of the inking and the detail that he put into the character's face. Uh, there were some differences, so that, that, that was... A, I'm, I'm hesitant because the story itself isn't great. He's got two sidekicks that he calls the Straw Men, and it's not great, but I, I really like the art. Isn't that a David V. Reed story? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Okay, yeah, he's he's kind of wonky. He's he's kind of like uh, Bob Haney's brother, you know, <laughs> which I love. I love my Bob Haney, but there's some there's some wacky stuff going on. I I, I kind of take. Now Reed wrote some stuff that I that I like, but it's some of it's really just. I mean, it it makes Bob Haney look like Denny O'Neill, honestly. I mean, it's it's, it's the difference of them. It's uh, so yeah, I, I can see that. I remember that one. Yeah, I think yeah. even uh, the cover to that one, we're going to see some similarities to the cover that we're 
going to talk about this time. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting that you that you brought that up. So yeah. yeah, so we're both fans of the Scarecrow. We can say that, and uh, we're ready to jump into Detective Number Five Seventy One. But before we do that, we have to go to the spinner rack because. We didn't do that last time because we wanted to jump into Batman Year One and Batman Number Four Hundred Four. Uh, so we need to talk about the comics that were uh, cover dated February nineteen eighty seven and on sale in November nineteen eighty six. So what do you see? What what jumps out at you, Ryan? Oh well, the first thing, probably the most important, was the issue that we covered in the last <laughs> episode of this, which is Batman Four Hundred and Four. <laughs> Um, but also, like noticeably, as we are starting the new origin of Batman, that same month, Wonder Woman issue one came out with the mm-hmm. new revised origin of her by George Perez with Len Wein scripting over his story, too. So uh, We right. also got another number one came out that month, The Question number one by Denny O'Neill, who's been editing the Batman book since we've started the show. So Yep, it's, uh, you know, we talked about Dennis Cowan was on Batman a few issues ago. And uh, maybe that was kind of a, a tryout for the question or it was to keep him busy while they geared up for the question. So uh, so there you go. Now he's off and running on his own series written by Danny O'Neill. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, the thing with Wonder Woman's interesting because I, there's an ad in this issue, and I was going to get that to that later, but I might as well get to it now while we brought it up. Because there's an ad for Wonder Woman number one, and it reads, first the Dark Knight, then the Man of Steel, now DC does it again. So it's interesting that DC at that time is considering the Dark Knight as kind of their new start for Batman, hmm. you know, because yeah. here's the new start for Superman. Here's the new start <laughs> for Wonder Woman. And what do they consider the new start for Batman? The Dark Knight, apparently. So, <laughs> Which is the end of Batman's story. <laughs> <That's>... Yeah. <laughs> now, you might just say, OK, maybe maybe they were saying, OK, it's a prestige take on the character by a big name. You know, OK, maybe that's what they meant. But it's sure. I mean, when I think of Man of Steel and Perez's Wonder Woman, I think of reboot, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so when you throw Dark Knight in there, it's like, OK, that's that's really strange. But. Yeah, that jumped out at me. So, <laughs> right, right. looking at the other covers, uh, speaking of John Byrne and Superman, action number uh, five eighty five has uh, Superman and the Phantom Stranger, and they're surrounded by swirling dirt and corpses and or tombstones, and that that's a cool story because there's a giant Earth monster that's uh-huh. made up of a cemetery. That's <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty wild story. I remember that that was that was good and creepy, you know. So it I like that good, one. And it ends up, I think, that story actually comes back a few issues later during one of the uh, action comic story where Superman teams up with the Green Lantern Corps. I think that's when it yes. resolves that Earth monster because Superman and Phantom Stranger cast like the Earth, the the whole cemetery out into space. But that's really yeah. not the end of the story. So. I like that because it actually addressed all the crap that the superheroes throw out in the space. <laughs> <laughs> what it does, you know. Uh, uh, you got a Mike Zek. <laughs> yeah, it's not our problem anymore. Uh, you got a Mike Zek Punisher cover on uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 285. I'm sure that helped boost sales uh, during this time period <laughs> yep, <laughs> when the yep. Punisher was, was hot and coming off the miniseries. Uh, we get the, uh, uh, importantly for our show, we get the trade paperback of Batman The Dark Knight Returns, and that was the version that I bought. So sometime around this period, like I've said before, I made my hallowed first trip to the comic book shop in Lexington, the Comic Connection in Lexington, Kentucky, and bought my copy of Batman The Dark Knight Returns. So it opened up many doors to me that <laughs> that day. <laughs> um, I know one thing that you and I have talked about 
you've got the first issue of Mask, Mobile Armored Strike Command, mm-hmm. Command with a K, number one, uh, the, the ongoing series. Yes. Uh, it's got art and cover by Rob Kelly's favorite artist, Kurt Swan. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I remember the comic wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't G.I. Joe good, but it wasn't bad. You know, Right, and, yeah. I've got the four-issue miniseries and a few issues from the ongoing series. The ongoing series only lasted nine issues. And I've, I recently reread the four issue miniseries. Uh, we we might end up doing something like that for a Fire and Water Presents. It is okay. It, it feels like a, a comic that is designed to tell to sell toys. The stories aren't as integrated as well as they might have been in GI Joe and Transformers, but it, they're they're fine. Actually, well, but it you- feels very much like cartoons. They feel like almost like scripts that could have been lifted from the cartoon and just transposed onto the comic. Well, I think that's one thing I liked about it was because there was, for me, there were discrepancies between the G.I. Joe and Transformers cartoons versus the comics. Right. Yeah. And with Mask, it, I didn't get that quite as much as I remember. And I might go back and read it now and say, oh, no, what, this was quite different. But I remember thinking they were more in sync than the other, which is weird because Marvel was involved in every aspect <laughs> of the development of the characters and the comics and the cartoon. I mean, Marvel Productions made the cartoons for G.I. Joe and Transformers. Uh, so it's kind of odd that the DC Mask comic lined up better. But, of course, they did the little mini comics that came with the, the toys, too, So which were – like they look just like the superpowers comics, but yeah, we're probably talking way too much about mask, but I just, I really loved the, I really loved mask. That was kind of my last great toy line I got into before I kind of, you know, grew out of playing with toys. Anyway, obviously I don't, didn't grow out of buying toys. Me neither, me neither. <laughs> other Batman and other Batman news this month, outsiders number 16 has a rare appearance by firefly before he was revamped as an arsonist. Hmm. Here he's basically the love child of Crazy Quilt and Killer Moth. Uh, <laughs> but he almost looks cool because that cover's drawn by Brian Ballin. So he almost looks cool. <laughs> I was going to say, if you ever wanted a, a love child of two characters, Crazy Quilt and Killer Moth, put those two together and what madness are you left with? Yeah, that is quite an interesting uh, design and look. So. Uh, yeah. Also going on at DC at this time, Legends is still going on. We've got Legends issue four, and of course there are Legends tie-ins in the Green Lantern comics, Justice League comics, Firestorm. We've got the second part of the history of the DC universe is published, mm. and uh, something that I care about. I don't think anybody else really ever noticed it, but uh, Secret Origins, uh, that rare <laughs> obscure comic. Issue 11 came out this month, which featured the origins of the Golden Age Hawkman and the completely reimagined origin for Power Girl that, well, that I didn't no, really care for. I, I don't think, and nothing against Paul Kupperberg, who was, who was doing the best he could with it, but I don't think anybody was ever really satisfied with that. I, I mean, I, I understand they were kind of up a creek with that one, but yeah, that, no. <laughs> There are so – like I, I understand that the whole thing was she could no longer be a, a parallel universe version of Supergirl. They were just – they were stripping that so she couldn't be Superman's cousin. They couldn't do all those things, whatever. Like there were just so many better explanations than saying that she was an ancient, ancient Atlantean who was put in stasis, came back and everything. Like it's, why? Like – do something else from sort of Superman's lore from this history. Like, make her from the far future, like with the Legion or something like that, I think was one of Shag's ideas. Or a, a sort of new version of Mon-El, something like that. There's just so many yeah. better ideas. Or just have her – I mean, I think they really 
missed an opportunity, and I know it was because they just wanted everything from the parallel world swept away. They just wanted it gone, but I think they missed an opportunity by just leaving her with her old origin and having nobody but her remember it. You know, I mean, think think about how that would have been a great hook for the character, and that's what they kind of ended up doing with her when when Jeff Johns brought that back, but. You know, if they'd left her and if they hadn't killed Huntress off and left her in the world, uh, literally a world that was not her own, you know, as they always say. And it could have, and they kind of, I guess they kind of did that in a way with the, uh, the, the world's finest in the new 52 that they did. But they could have done that 30 years earlier with those two if they hadn't killed Huntress and if they'd not screwed up Power Girl's origin. So, but we weren't there, you know. We were too young to be writing DC Comics back then, I guess. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know because I was about the same age that Jim Shooter and Carrie Bates started writing comics back in the 60s. So. <laughs> don't remind me. That's depressing. <laughs> we have failed at our, in our lives. Uh, <laughs> one comic that jumps out at me um, here was the Spider-Man vs. Wolverine special that came out. Uh, that has the Jim Owsley slash Christopher Priest story that totally screwed over the ongoing Who is the Hobgoblin storyline that Roger Stern and Tom DeFalco had worked on so hard because, <laughs> spoiler war- warning, in that story it's revealed that the Hobgoblin was Ned Leeds and he's killed in that same issue. And that's how Spider-Man finds out. I mean, it's the biggest WTF moment in comics in the 80s. It's like all this buildup, and that's how you find out in a Spider-Man Wolverine comic, and it's not even – the guy's dead before Spider-Man even knows he's the Hobgoblin? I mean, what? <laughs> that's just wrong. Yeah, that's uh... – <laughs> there's, there's a back issue article. Like, I don't know what the issue is, but there's a back issue article that goes into depth about what in the heck happened there, and there's a lot of it's, – it's really interesting because there's a lot of – like editorial infighting and backbiting and backstabbing and it's it's really ugly honestly and and uh, this was the result of that so was it and of course later sorry was oh, it like ahead. a timing issue like one of the issues came out before it was supposed to or was it really like one editor trying to screw over another my my remembrance of reading the article and and I mean I hate to throw anybody under the bus but my my reading of the article was that Owsley slash Priest mm-hmm. uh, same guy different yeah. names. Basically, he became the editor of the Spider-Man books, and he was having a conflict with DeFalco. Stern was long gone at the time. This was right before, I think, DeFalco became editor-in-chief of, of Marvel. And uh, and he basically he kicked DeFalco and Ron Friends off the book, and then he decided to go off and just basically screw up their storyline in another book to get rid of it, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 – Pretty ugly. Now, I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've read that article. So, if, guys, if you've read that article and you're like, no, 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 that's not how it happened, well, let me know and say, you know, correct me. But it's it's something along those lines, and it's just kind of nasty. It's it's really just uh, not nice. And I know later on Roger Stern came back and revealed that he wasn't really the Hobgoblin. He wasn't the original Hobgoblin, which the guy that he ended up revealing who he was, at that point, no one cared. So it's, it was unfortunate. They really... Screwed the pooch on that one. There's just no two ways about it. <laughs> uh, but on happier notes, are, are we good on the spinner rack? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Well, let's take a quick promo break, and then we'll get into a good comic, Detective Comics number 571. Don't go away. Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? 
Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. And though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. Detective Comics number 571 was cover dated February 1987. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was on sale November 27th, 1986. The cover features an eerie, misty green background and a large, looming figure of the Scarecrow, holding a struggling Robin tight in one hand. With his other hand, he's reaching for a grim but oblivious Batman in the foreground. So what do you think of this one, Ryan? It's a great cover. No surprise, based on the art team, but it's really cool. The green, kind of misty atmosphere lends a lot to it. It feels like an old horror type of story. Um, I love the, the Scarecrow enlarged, like you mentioned, like the cover of the previous Batman story that I mentioned, Batman 296 with Sal Amendola, is a similar idea with a larger-than-life Scarecrow kind of reaching out for Batman. And actually, keen-eyed observers and followers of the Fire and Water Network may notice that this image, or part of it, was used by Rob Kelly, who knows a thing or two about art, when he designed our cover art for the FW Presents podcast. Uh, if you look mm. at that cover art, it's got a montage of lots of different uh, characters that we cover on these, the various Fire and Water podcast episodes, and he used part of this cover on that. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a winner. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. Scarecrow looks genuinely creepy without looking too monstrous, uh, like some artists have gone nowadays. Uh, Davis really conveys Robin struggling in his hand, and you know, Batman just looks grim and determined, and he looks like he's like, "Where are you?" You know, that's kind of looks like the look <laughs> he's got on. It's like he's screaming, "Where are you?" or something. It's another winner. You know, it's it's Alan Davis, and it's of course it is. So, okay, let's get into the story here. Fear for Sale, Mike W. Barr, writer, Alan Davis and Paul Neary, artists, John Workman, letterer, Adrian Roy, colorist, Denny O'Neill, editor. Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Jason Todd, are in attendance at a Gotham racetrack. Bruce reminds Jason that they aren't really there to eat hot dogs and enjoy the race. Recently, several prominent sports figures, including a high diver and a hang glider, have been seriously injured after they uncharacteristically took extreme risks while practicing their crafts. Bruce believes that there's more tying these cases together than mere coincidence, and he suspects a race car driver may be the next victim. As usual, his hunch pans out. When racing champion Jack Hogan takes to the track with no safety harness and a careless grin on his face, Bruce and Jason don the legendary uniforms of Batman and Robin and make their way to the track. They are almost too late as Hogan's reckless behavior causes him to crash in a dangerous curve. Batman grabs a fire hose and instructs a nervous Robin to spray him down and then keep the streams trained on him while he tries to rescue Hogan. Jason nearly panics but follows his mentor's orders. Suddenly, a smoking Batman emerges with Hogan's injured but still breathing body. Later at the hospital, Batman asks the battered driver why he would take such dangerous chances. Hogan doesn't have the answer, but he does know he'd do it again in a minute. Batman procures Hogan's blood sample and later examines it in the Batcave. He finds traces of it match the chemical agents used by his old foe, the Scarecrow. 
He quizzes Jason on the villain, and the young Robin recaps the Master of Fear's beginnings as psychology professor Jonathan Crane. Crane was the butt of jokes and ridicule by both his students and peers for his awkward appearance, shabby clothing, and lack of social skills. Crane turned to crime to fund his research, taking the very guise of the figure whose name they mocked him with, the Scarecrow. While Robin is sympathetic to Crane's plight, Batman reminds him that he can't take his woes out on society. The two swing out into the night in search of their foe. Robin stakes out Hogan's hospital room and listens in on a bug Batman placed there earlier. It's not long before the Scarecrow enters the room. He and Hogan had dealings before, with Scarecrow providing a drug to take away his fears. A frantic Hogan complains he didn't know the drug would make him take such chances and loses common sense. Crane notes that common sense is a form of fear, and he offers an antidote to his patient for a cool $50,000. At that moment, Robin crashes through the window. The boy wonder underestimates his foe, who releases his normal fear-inducing gas on the youngster. In his tortured mind, Robin sees a burning and skeletal Batman admonishing him for failing to save his life. Overcome by his fearful vision, Robin crumbles to the floor in a catatonic state, making it easy for Scarecrow to bag him up. Hogan still refuses to pay Crane his now-increased fee of $100,000, so the Scarecrow bets he can't leap from his window to the floor and live. Hogan takes that bet, and Scarecrow wins again. He drags Robin's lifeless body away as he cackles into the night. Scarecrow then makes a call on a professional daredevil named Alvin Kenner at his home on the outskirts of Gotham. Despite planning another death-defying stunt, Kenner still isn't interested in Scarecrow's previous offer to take away his fear. Scarecrow asks his host for a light, but when Kenner searches for one, the pharaoh of phobias shoots him with a drug dart. Knowing Kenner suffers from pyrophobia and fears fire, he deduces he is dealing with Batman in disguise. The Dark Knight rips away his Kenner mask and admits he made a rookie mistake. Crane pumps him full of even more darts, slowing the hero down, allowing him to shoot him one more time. As the Cape Crusader passes out, he hears his old enemy mention an invitation to find his quarry. When Batman awakens, he finds Scarecrow has left him an envelope, one containing the R symbol from Robin's tunic. An unusually cocky Batman is sure he can save Robin and defeat anything that gets in his way. At the Atlas Concrete Plant, Scarecrow monologues to a bound Robin about the many death traps he's prepared for the masked manhunter. Robin scoffs at this, but Crane warns him that Batman is now under the influence of the fear-inhibiting drug, making him reckless and careless. Cluing in on Scarecrow's use of the word quarry and traces of concrete dust on Robin's emblem, Batman arrives at the plant. Knowing he has been drugged, he struggles with the effects. He finds himself enjoying the danger and taking unnecessary risks, such as playing matador to a rushing automated semi-truck. He pulls himself back together long enough to crash one truck into another, but then almost risks leaping over a chasm filled with giant metal grinders. He once again controls his overconfidence, but he can't stop himself from using the entire contents of his utility belt to blow the grinders apart. The mind of the world's greatest detective digs deep for a way to survive the Scarecrow's gauntlet as a gleeful crane and worried Robin watch on security monitors. Batman enters the building only to be chased by a giant spiked wheel, pushing him toward a water-filled pit. He makes the leap to the other side and misses, landing several feet in a pool below and soon surrounded by huge automatic machine guns. The guns begin their barrage and Batman dives downward. A full 10 minutes later, the guns stop and the Scarecrow is certain his hated foe is dead, loading to a sobbing Robin that he is either perforated or drowned. Robin's tears of defeat turn into those of joy when the Dark Knight enters the room and knocks the Duke of Dread cold. Batman tells a worried Robin he'll be fine once he gets the antidote to Crane's drug, but the boy wonder is puzzled. How did Batman survive Scarecrow's death trap? The world's greatest escape artist tells his young charge 
He wedged himself into a corner of the pit where the bullets couldn't reach him, and he breathed air captured from his cape until the ammo ran out. But how did he conquer the effects of the drug to make it through the gauntlet? Batman admits he had to think of a different fear, the most terrible one he could conceive. He doesn't tell Robin what that fear is. But as the dynamic duo cart their foe away, we see inside Batman's mind the symbolic image of a tombstone that reads, Here lies Jason Todd, 1974 to 1986, murdered by the Scarecrow. Okay, I've talked enough. What did you think of this one, Ryan? <laughs> I was going to say, you know, God, are you ever going to let me talk <laughs> in this episode? <laughs> I, I have mentioned it before. I think I mentioned it on the two previous episodes. I love the way Alan Davis draws the Scarecrow. Uh, and certainly we never run short of things to praise about Alan Davis's artwork when he was drawing the series. But he has my fi- he draws my favorite version of the Scarecrow. I'm a little bit less enthused about how Barr writes the character. It's not bad, but there are times when he has Scarecrow laughing, and the combination of him laughing and maybe John Workman's lettering with how he like really kind of plays into the laughter, it's it's a very sort of manic, almost Joker or Frank Gorshin Riddler level laughing. And mm. it just feels like the wrong note for Scarecrow. Like, He's not that type of manic villain. And maybe this is Barr pulling from the challenge of the Super Friends uh, because that mm-hmm. was sort of like when Lex Luthor does the villain roll call at the beginning, the last shot is Scarecrow. It's just a shot of his face and he's doing that kooky laugh. So yeah. maybe they were, maybe he was kind of playing into that. That's just not something about Scarecrow that I like. He could, he could have kind of like a sinister, vindictive laugh, but not that energy level like a, a, like a Joker or a Riddler type of thing. I just... I, I wasn't crazy about that. Aside from that, it's a good story. I dig it. Uh, what'd you think? Oh yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think, of course, the artwork's just gorgeous, mm-hmm. and I'm with you. I think I think Davis draws probably the best Scarecrow. I mean, he he's gangly looking. His clothes are baggy, which is interesting. He he's he makes him skinny, but still has his clothes be baggy, like they're ill fitting. Yeah, and he looks like there's somebody in the costume, but it's it's kind of creepy. It's like yes, there's somebody in there, but I'm not quite sure what's in there's human. It's it's, <laughs> it's it's like when he puts it on, it's like it's almost like there's a skeleton inside it or something. You know, it's so so that's uh, it's good and creepy. I like the way he does the the stitches on his mouth. He almost looks like he's got teeth mm-hmm. in on his on his mask and his he. he plays around with his eyes like sometimes they're little like little pin pricks little circles other times they're you know white slits it's he's really creepy looking without like i said getting into the monstrous look that some artists go for nowadays and that was uh, you and, mentioned like the the little stitching to almost make it look like he had teeth that was something that i did notice about that amandola story is like the way he kind of shaded it in inking you could almost see a skeletal type of face underneath the burlap sack uh, and mm-hmm. I think Davis mm-hmm. and Neary are kind of doing a similar thing. Yeah, I like that. I think, you know, and of course, I think that's what eventually influenced the the look that he's got on the new Batman Adventures, which is just the creepiest <laughs> scarecrow yeah. look ever. Yeah. <laughs> which we'll get into that later. But and I like the story. I like the hook that Scarecrow's not giving fear; he's taking it away this time. I think that's a that's a very nice angle. It's an original idea, and uh, the fact that Batman, you know, gets a dose of it. Is, is a really neat way to go with the story. I think it's a very clever story. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I want to bring up as we go along, but overall, I, I enjoyed the the heck out of this one. It's another, it's just another winner from from the team. I, of course, I don't think we're going to get a loser from this team, <laughs> but but uh, but this is uh, just a, it's another great uh, you know Batman story. And 
it actually before I don't want to forget this. It's in the uh, Batman in the '80s trade paperback. It's the Alan Davis, Paul Neary, uh, Mike W. Barr story that's selected to go in the Batman in the '80s trade paperback the DC put out probably like 10, 15 years ago. Probably more because it's the only complete done in one that yeah. they did. That was my first um, thought. Yeah. It, but but still, it, that goes to show that yeah, they made sure that they included a story from this run, and they certainly should have, mm-hmm. and they did, and and uh, it's it's a stand it's a standout. Now, one weird thing about this one is I didn't buy this one when it first came out. I missed it by I don't know how long it was, but I missed this issue somehow. You know, newsstand which. Uh, newsstand distribution, which I was usually pretty good about catching Batman and Detective every month, pretty much since like 1980, probably one or something. Uh, but this one uh, I had to track down. I, and I, at first I didn't even realize I'd missed an issue. And uh, when I realized it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what, you know, I, I think it might have even been the, the letter column, uh, you know, so like three issues out or something. When they were talking about this one, I'm like, what, 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 what are they talking about? And then I went and looked at the issue numbers and I was like, oh, I missed an issue. So one of my trips to the comic shop after I you know, started going to the comic shop on occasion, I mean, I didn't go very often, but uh, I had to look through the back issues and, and find a copy. So I've had it close to as long as it's been out, but not quite. So huh. this was the one issue of probably any Batman comic we're going to talk about for a while that I didn't buy when it hit the shelves, you know. This is one that I never had the floppy copy of. I've only got it in the uh, the Alan Davis hardcover collection because I mentioned there were about like half of his stories I had the floppies of, but that was it. This is one that I didn't read until uh, when did this come out? Two years ago, maybe. I'm trying to think. Mm, anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. But yeah, but we talked about Scarecrow at the beginning of this episode, and and I mentioned that I did like him. I became a fan, but there was always something that I think kind of kept me from loving the character. And part of it was the color scheme. And as much as I like how he's drawn in this, like there's something about just like the blandness of the brown and less brown burlap sack and everything I like him. Like I just that that was one of the things that I liked about uh, Batman animated series one is the different shades. He had dark brown pants. He had a reddish shirt. Mm-hmm. He's he's a character that once you get the idea of of how he's supposed to look, I think you can play a little bit with the textures and the color scheme of you know he could be he could like he could look like an old scarecrow. He could have like a a ratty flannel shirt or something like that. You could be a little bit more color. And I think when I was a kid when I was first discovering him a lot of it was i thought the color scheme was just boring uh yeah it was just like a dark brown on light brown and yes yeah. but i mean you look at this and the guys make it work somehow and yeah. you were right like you you can definitely tell there's there's something in there but like the knees shouldn't bend that way you know <laughs> the wrists <laughs> shouldn't bend that way it's like is he human like if you Actually, what this reminds me of, this type of costume, and this would be like a cool effect for a Scarecrow story, like if he's if he poisons somebody and they're hallucinating, he reminds me of Oogie Boogie from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like if like Batman yeah. was grabbing him and like ripped off the mask, you would just see like worms or flies or something flying out, and there wouldn't actually be a physical form underneath there. That would be like a horrifying thing for like an actual Scarecrow story. Well, they did that in Batman Begins when Batman gets fear-gassed and... He sees like the, the oh, yeah, maggots yeah. and yeah. the bat crawling out of his mouth and all that. Yeah, so that's and they did a great job. I, I really liked how they handled the scarecrow and I do too. And, and Batman for, begins. Yes, for the for the hyper realistic world that the Nolan movies have, I think they got pitch perfect with a scarecrow. That was great. Yeah, I really wish they'd given him even more to do in the other two movies. I'm glad he showed up, but um, I, I really liked that he was kind of the 
the thread that kind of tied those together as far as Batman villains go. Uh, I, that that was neat. I know you mentioned that your son has played some of the like the Batman Arkham games. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Scarecrow in those, like in Arkham Asylum and Arkham City? Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen him, and I've I've helped play the. You know, I've come in and gave Andrew a break when he was trying to defeat like the giant scarecrow that yes. one of those games is like this giant scarecrow there. <laughs> you got to get like, he's like tearing buildings apart and you're trying to get past him or something. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He's got the gas mask built into his look and everything. Yeah. He looks like some kind of twisted amalgamation of the Wesley Dodd Sandman meets the scarecrow or something. Yeah. And, and yeah, I wanted to come back to that about how they re-envisioned him in that, that game. Um, but yeah, it's in Arkham Asylum. It's in the first game, and it's uh, it's an amazing like setup. Like it is like when I was playing the game for the first time, I was blown away by how cool it was. Just like in the gameplay thing, because you don't realize that you've been gassed at first until you're like walking down the hall in like one of the hospital areas, and like bugs start coming down the walls and everything, and it gets really creepy and eerie. But it, you end up you're, as you're playing as Batman, you go into the morgue, and there are three tables with three body bags just like lying on the slabs. And you pull the zipper and you open the first one and it's Thomas Wayne, dead. And you go to the other one and it's Martha Wayne, dead. And then you go to the third one and it's kind of like shaking like there's something in there. And you unzip it and the scarecrow comes out and like grabs you. But mm. what they did, how they re-envisioned the character, it's a very cool look, but I don't like it for Scarecrow. He does. He has a gas mask and he has a glove that's almost like Freddy Krueger-like, except it's got mm-hmm. four syringes where the fingers would be. And he He's like, like the Dream Warriors Freddy when he gets the yes, drug addict and yes. kills her, yeah. Now, <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, I love that look. It is such a great look, but that that should be the look for Wonder Woman's villain, Dr. Poison. Mm. Like, that would be perfect for her, like the gas mask thing and those type of, like, strange things, because Scarecrow already has a good look with the burlap sap and the hat, and that's that's what you think of when you see a Scarecrow. Nobody, like, who has, like, a, a Scarecrow in their field, like a farmer or whatever, has a gas mask on the thing, unless they're a super paranoid person. <laughs> right. Like, but so yeah. I, I love the look of the scarecrow in those video games, but I just thought that's a look that should have been Dr. Poison for Wonder Woman instead of Scarecrow. Well, maybe they'll work it into the movie, you know, because apparently I just found out last night that character that I kind of thought might be Dr. Cyber is apparently Dr. Poison. So, yeah, that's what I, <laughs> yeah, cool. uh, I, I like that character as a villain. So, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And it makes sense, you know, in the World War One setting and everything, too. So um, you brought up that Scarecrow, you know, could have the look of flannel and, mm-hmm. and more colorful. Have you ever seen Scarecrow from the Filmation cartoon, the 60s one? I'm sure I have. I can't picture it in my head right now. It, it, he's got like blue and in a face that kind of looks like a raggedy Andy. It's it's kind of it's kind of creepy in a in a non creepy way, you know what huh. I mean? It's yeah, like yeah, it yeah. shouldn't be creepy, but it is. <laughs> and he's got more. He looks more like a like a Halloween scarecrow come to life than like the like a scarecrow you'd see on a uh, you know a die cut hanging decoration that yeah, you buy yeah, in a yeah. pack of Halloween. So that's what it kind of looks like. And uh, I think he was only on there like one time, but that, they you know they they adapted him into media before Hanna Barbera got around to him. And then of course on the animated series. The first time he showed up, he had the whole bag over his head look going on, and he looked more like the traditional comic scarecrow with more vibrant colors. But then they decided they Bruce Timm said it just wasn't animating right. They weren't getting the the gangly look they wanted, so they they changed him to have the open mouth with the straw hair, and yeah. he ended up looking more like the Super Friends version, I know, honestly. I know. <laughs> 
And then they, of course, changed him to the uh, hanged corpse look with the Jeffrey Combs creepy voice. I mean, God, that scarecrow's creepy. When he first showed up, I'm like, holy cow, how are they even getting away with this visual? I mean, it's a hanged corpse. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, let's make the let's draw the scariest version of this character we can think of. But what can we really do to take it to the next level? Oh, you remember the guy from Reanimator? <laughs> let's get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, but maybe we should talk about this story. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this issue, this story feels even more like an old school Bill Finger type story to me. I mean, this this could have been they were there was always like a, coming up with a new hook that fit in with the villains M.O. Because they wanted to bring the villains. They wanted to bring Joker back. They wanted to bring Penguin back as often as they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the Scarecrow only appeared like twice in the Golden Age, you know, you can just imagine that Bill Finger or somebody could have come up with this type of hook back then. And you would have had the intro with Bruce and, of course, it would have been Dick back then. Bruce and Dick at the race car track. It it just feels it feels kind of Golden Agey with a, with a modern spin. Maybe in a little bit less like the Batman TV show than the previous episode, the previous yeah. issues did. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, you still got, you still got some of that, but, but uh, it feels more like this is straight from the old uh, Batman comics. You even get the honest to goodness old time splash page that works as a second cover. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, you got the title page. It's uh, Scarecrow's at a cash register that's ringing up fear, an old school cash register. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it says fear for sale above him and, Batman and Robin are swinging in, and there's all these uniforms and gear of, of like a race car driver and a right. deep diver and these these death defying occupations or hobbies, and uh, it's it's neat. I mean, like I said, it could it could have worked as a as a second cover, and comics just didn't do that at this point. You know, right. it's it's interesting to see it. Um, on page two, once the story actually begins, Bruce Wayne just does not look like he fits in at a racetrack. <laughs> kind of thinking like you know you've got a crowd of people going to a nascar event you know even jason you know he's got his hat he's got like popcorn or whatever he's like he's having fun bruce billionaire playboy sitting there in a suit with binoculars just looking as stern and rigid because he's in you know undercover he's in surveillance mode we're here on the job even though we're not in costume boy like just like in terms of body language yeah he's wow, rigid yeah, he, and- he does not fit in <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, the scene from the Naked Gun where Queen Elizabeth they have to move the rednecks out of her seat yes. at the ball game. That's what it makes me think of. It's, <laughs> they're sitting there in the Queen's seats that are reserved. It, uh, it's what it made me think of. It, and you know, you would think, well, why doesn't Bruce Wayne have box seats? But he wouldn't have them so they can get out of there quick. If he's in the in, up in the you know the press box or where or the, the 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 lounge seats up top then he's going to have to make excuses when they have to duck out because, you know, he's he's figures something's going to happen here. So I like that we get Batman, who is still very much the detective here. We talked about how uh, I think Rob and Michael Bailey brought up how Batman slowly became a brutalizer versus a detective uh, in the comics. And this is very much the Batman who's noticing things that are going on in the media. He's connecting. He's making connections. Uh, he's, you know, he's probably got a good idea that, hmm, this could be one of my, you know, villains. He may have even had thought at this point it could be the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so even though it's kind of the opposite of his usual M.O. Uh, so I like that. I like that he's he's ahead of the game here. He's not he's not just skulking around a rooftop waiting for a mugger to attack somebody, you know. So I, this, this is kind of a, that's that in its way is also, you know, old school Batman. I like that. 
Yeah. Davis does a great job with some of the facial expressions, like the close-ups of Jason when he's pouring the hose on the burning car. Mm-hmm. And then on page six, when they are talking to the driver in his hospital bed, that shot of the driver, just with his dumb, goofy smile on his face, is like, yeah, I know, I could have died, but I'd do it again in a minute. Like, I had no yeah. idea that he's, like, under this powerful drug that's taken away his inhibitions. Uh, oh, I love that big dopey grin. I can't. I hear, I hear Will Ferrell as Ricky Bobby when I read. <laughs> just like, although if he caught on fire, he'd been help me, baby Jesus. I'm on, fire. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, you're not on fire, Ricky. <laughs> uh, I love that movie too. Yeah. <laughs> I know so many people like that. It's not even funny. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's kind of funny, too, that, you know, nowadays Batman's suit is probably completely fireproof and and, and probably if it gets overheated, it secretes some fire, uh, you know, purging foam out of it. But, you know, here Jason has to hose him down and as he runs in. I mean, I assume his costume is somewhat fireproof or he would have burned up either way. But, you know, now it's made of four layers of Nomax weave with the Kevlar, you know, <laughs> something or something. So, yeah. One thing I want to point out in that scene. I kind of I miss old school comic coloring. You know, Adrian Roy is able to illustrate heat with just like a few shades of red and yellow in that scene. I mean, she colors everything in different shades of red, yellow, and orange, and you can just feel the heat coming off the page. And I, I used to like that in comics when they, you know, when they, you know there was an explosion or a fire, and and you or you know if it was like really cold and everything was in blue, and and uh, I, I kind of I kind of miss that. You know, with this today's overly digitized coloring, you kind of lose that because they can they can you know Photoshop in the 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 flames like <laughs> reflecting right. on the costumes and stuff. So uh, it's it's just an it's just a neat old school thing that's kind of lost. So well, speaking of the colors and the effects and everything, page ten. I mean, talk about a page that just like knocks you down with what with what Davis does with this. You've got Jason confronting Scarecrow the burst gas canister and everything and just like the way it affects them and, and the sort of deterioration of the panels in that row, mm-hmm. how they sort of just yes. break apart and everything, which is, it's not even what you notice first, but it is like how they start to be slanting and towards the end, it's like the, the panels are losing integrity, like they're almost burning. And then you just see Jason watching Batman on fire, like burning alive, calling to him, saying he failed. And it's, oh, that's such a good page. Yeah, I mean, Davis doesn't, like I think I mentioned last time, he doesn't get overly showy with the panel layout, but when he does, he makes it work. I mean, like you said, the the panels where they're like, they're falling off, you know, yes. and, and, and the color goes to green to yellow, and then it and then it jumps into the, the red of the, of the red, yellow, and orange of the Batman being on fire. That's, that's some great, great stuff. And, and, you know, one thing about, we talked about Davis drawing expressions, he's not afraid to show the characters with like a really weird expression to convey, like Jason scrunching up his, his face when he's trying to not breathe in the gas. He looks like a, well, honestly, he looks like a, a, a gremlin right there. <laughs> he's, he's, he looks like a gizmo or something right there. Uh, you know, it's, but I mean, it works. I mean, you get the idea that he's really trying to to hold his breath, not inhale the gas, and then bam, the next he's, it's too late. You know, in the in the expression on Hogan's face when he's like, "I can," you know, when he's when he jumps out the window. I mean, it's like, 
Wow. That's a, I mean, Alan Davis could hold his own against uh, Kevin McGuire for, for facial expressions, I think. Yeah. No, and yeah, and I, I love that beat, like how everything that Batman and Robin went to to save this guy in the opening scene. And Scarecrow's like, I bet you can't jump out that window and live. And he's like, oh, of course I can't. And he's like, oh, oh okay, you're dead. And it's like, wow, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> Yeah, that was. I mean, it's you know, just and it's it's a joke, really. You yeah. know, it's a scarecrow. It's just yeah. like, oh yeah. I, one thing I got to we got to back up a couple of pages. I got to bring this up. Okay, Batman and Robin get their gear on. Alfred has to bring Batman a new uniform, which Batman's going through a lot of uniforms in our Nightcast era here. I mean, <laughs> getting stolen, getting burned up, you know. Then it shows them swinging away from Wayne Manor. <laughs> it does. Now wait a minute. Well, Wayne you, Manor is <laughs> no. You know what they're swinging from? They're swinging from the side of Arkham Asylum because, as we have discovered previously, <laughs> Wayne Manor and Arkham Asylum are next door neighbors. <laughs> well, there you go. That's right. They threw the batarang. They didn't have grapple guns yet. They threw the batarang, bat rope onto Arkham Asylum and swung swung over. But, got, are they gonna... They're swinging by the bars of Poison Ivy's cell. <laughs> <laughs> but. You know, I remember reading somewhere. I don't remember where it was. I don't remember who it was, so I apologize. But somebody somewhere, it might have been even Denny O'Neill in an interview, said something about one artist who didn't want to draw the Batmobile. And I don't think in this run we ever see Davis draw the Batmobile. Uh, now, he draws it in Batman full circle. Yeah. But here, everywhere you see Batman and Robin are swinging. Okay, in the city, okay, fine. But Gotham, <laughs> uh, Gotham City is, by some accounts, 14 miles away from Wayne Manor. Are they going to swing across the trees all the way into Gotham? I mean, I know Alan Davis did the nail, but does he have Batman going Amish back in 1986? I don't know. It's like (laughs) – Alfred is in the bat helicopter, the bat gyrocopter, whatever, flying. They're swinging from that. (laughs) There you go. That's what it is. You know, it almost (laughs) – it almost seems like, I, and, and I this is probably wrong, but what this sort of reminds me of, if Davis only drew Batman and Robin swinging and then was counting on Paul Neary or somebody else to fill in the background, assuming that it would be a cityscape and that message just mm. didn't come across and they just drew the background as Wayne Manor. And then they, mm. like, I mean, I'm not basing that on any evidence. I'm, I'm probably wrong, but that's sort of what it reminds me of. Because you're right, that doesn't make sense. It jumped out at me. Again, I, I think I remember noticing that the first time. I'm like, wait a minute, wait, why aren't <laughs> are they, they hopping it? Ho- what are they swinging from? It's like you know, Spider Man when he's swinging above the <laughs> all the tallest buildings in New York, and it's like, well, what's he attached to? Clouds? Yeah. I mean, it's like and t- you know, take it from trees. Say, for example, that they could swing from something consistently, like you, as you said, Wind Manor is like 14 miles outside the city. <laughs> They're going to get there. Their arms are going to be like spaghetti. (laughs) They're not going to be able to fight crime. It's just, holy crap, Batman, I'm tired. (laughs) Why did we swing for the last hour and a half to get to the city? We have cars. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I know I almost hate to bring that up, but I just could not not bring it up. I mean, it's just so sorry. I had to to go back and bring that up. Uh, So we get to Alvin Kenner, uh, who is very obviously based on Evil Knievel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even has a similar. I don't think Evil's hair was quite that crazy, but he, you know, this is Evil Knievel and Logan had a love child. <laughs> I was uh, going to say this is the uh, this is the Hellfire Club version of Evil Knievel. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
but one thing that's it's interesting because his name's Alvin Kenner, which Kenner didn't make Evil Knievel's toys, Ideal did, and then Kenner made Batman's toys. But I'm I'm sure that was just because it kind of sounded like Knievel's while right. they did it. But but one thing that I think is interesting is Scarecrow says he's got pyrophobia. The man is a daredevil stunt driver, and he's afraid of fire. Now he is going to be Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's going to be fire involved when you crash, more than likely. I mean, I'm just I'm just guessing. You've got combustible gas in your in your vehicles. You're jumping, so it's. <laughs> Speaking of phobias, I know I I keep on going back to that Batman 296 because I just reread it last night in sort of preparation for this. But there was a line in that when Scarecrow has one of his like goons or somebody has a fear of the Batman. And mm. the, the textbook, like, Latin definition of it that Scarecrow comes up with is chiroptohomophobia. <laughs> now, okay, if you take the part, okay, chiropter or chiropter or whatever it is for the, means bat, homo meaning man or human, but it's like you put those mm-hmm. words together – that, for, they made that up because I don't think the, the American Psychiatric Association has an actual fear of Batman. But what it sounds like when you read it, chiroptohomophobia, I was like, is he afraid of gay Batman? <laughs> it, it's Frederick Wortham. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> that's what it is. It's the ghost of Frederick Wortham. He's come back. But, oh, man. I, just, I saw that line. I was like, really? They actually thought that that would sound official? Chiroptohomophobia? The fear of Batman? <laughs> maybe maybe take another pass at that one. Who was it? Oh, uh, Reed Davis Reed, I think read it. So. Yeah. Re- <laughs> anyway. And then, then yeah. so so I got a question. It looks like I mean, it looks like Kenner's contemplating jumping from one twin tower t- to the other. Uh, so wow, now that's <laughs> that's a stunt. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's not what he's. But maybe it's something some other structure. But it. <laughs> Because they're even, but it looks that's what it kind of looks like. Yeah, so it does. It's like, it does. yeah. Now, now we get into this part here, and we get the fabled rubber mask over Batman's cowl, and the addition of rubber gloves over Batman's gloves. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I, I can't even. It's it's comic books. It, it because comic books. It's, it's part of the medium of the superhero genre. Of course, Batman over his cowl, which has ears, is wearing a mask that looks like a human. It looks passably human with hair and everything. It's, you, you can't do that in any other visual medium. It's something that only no. exists in comic books. So you just have to lean into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's you know, I can kind of buy a little bit more because. Kenner's hair is so insanely tall that <laughs> Batman's ears are kind of hidden underneath it, but and maybe they push down a little bit. And Davis's Batman ears aren't incredibly long, but <laughs> but yeah, it's it's still it it's just an old classic Batman trope. But I mean, this I'm sure we're going to see it more, but we're probably getting toward the end of of this uh, type of thing showing up in the comics. It's it's the the uh, as we get more into the. You know, oh, it's got to be believable, you know, even though there's all sorts of other fantastical things going on. Uh, this bridge gets just uh, – it's a, just a bridge too far for, for fans later on. So, we'll, you know. All of a sudden, his Matches Malone secret identity has an afro for some reason. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Yeah, when Batman finally goes to the quarry to track down Scarecrow, I love that Scarecrow is watching him from like these computer banks and like this security station, and he says to Batman, he's like, don't resist my toxin, succumb to it, go out with style. <laughs> he, wants, he wants Batman <laughs> yeah. to just give into his inhibitions and just like play crazy, and it leads to my favorite gag, and this is Batman plays Matador with a with a runaway tow truck. He like lets it run yeah. and like does the ole thing with his cape. It's just a beautiful little visual thing. <laughs> it, it reminded me of uh, there's a there's a '60s Batman episode where Batman has to play Matador, yeah. and it, that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 great. Yeah, it, Batman and Davis does a great job of showing. I mean, the, the, he gives Batman this wide eyed, you know, cocky grin in several panels, and then the next panel he's making this grimaced face like, no, I've got to fight this, you know, just, yeah. I mean, he really sells the struggle, you know, that, I mean, from one panel to the next, it's just, uh, he's just jumping back and forth, you know, g- giving in and then fighting it again, and a uh, panel on page 19 where he's like, really, you got to figure out a way to, you know, get past this, it's, and he's got his fist up, I mean, and there's all these lines around him, it's just, uh, you can just feel the the struggle, you know, from him. You know, it's it's great. Page twenty one, the punch when when he levels Scarecrow. Uh, I, it, I love that image. Just it's so good. It's so damning. Now, I looked at that and I thought, w- with the exception of the cape, because it was, I was going to say that the image sort of reminded me of a Norm Brayfogle Batman, uh, but not mm-hmm. a cape. Norm Brayfogle. I think he took a lot of. One thing that I would accuse him of, like his cape is like no other cape, and sometimes it kind of goes into the Todd McFarlane defying physics realm of what the cape can do. Um, but it yeah. reminded me of like he's got like the, he's in full color, blue and gray, but the mask, the cowl, and the head, and everything is just all black in shadow. Uh, and mm-hmm. that sort of reminded me of something that Bray Fogle would do when he was drawing Batman. And I wonder if he kind of took a cue. Because there's sometimes when Bray Fogle, I think his work does kind of remind me of Alan Davis in some of these stories. And yeah. Other, I, no, I'm sorry. I, I was, and other times it's it's slightly McFarlane. It's like this weird hybrid of the two kind of extremes. Yeah, he, he Bray Fogle was interesting because he'll slip into uh, a more uh, Neil Adams uh, anatomy, yeah. you know, here and there, like more of a hard anatomy kind of like what alan davis does and then he'll uh it'll you know like in in the same figure like part of it'll be like super defined like musculature and then the cape like disappears into like a wisp you know uh or his legs do or something he he, but he makes it work i mean that's that's the one of the great things about norman brayfogle but yeah i can see that here because you know he's got the teeth showing which is a hallmark of of brayfogle's angry batman and Uh, yeah, and I love the sound effect wood, W H U D wood. Yeah, it, you know the death trap here. It's not it's not the same, but it has a similar feel to the one that Barr devised for the Earth One and Earth Two Batman in Brave and the Bold number two hundred. Uh, because there, it involves a pit. Uh, it involves uh, one of them involves Robin being tied up and having to watch it. The villain the villains monitoring it the whole time. And, you know, you don't know how Batman gets out. It seems like he's dead and he, you know, knocks the villain out and then explains how he got out of it afterwards. You know, so it's it's got a, it's not the same. and He's not like stealing from himself, but it's got a similar feel. And it's it's Mike W. Barr. So he can, <laughs> he right. can like we said before, he can he can borrow from himself with impunity. You know, it's fine. You go ahead. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, we get to the the end here. And, uh, man, poor old Jason, 
He's got the sword of Damocles hanging over his head. <laughs> I got to the same thing. I was like, boy, the writing was really on the wall that this this Robin was on borrowed time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, thanks to Frank Miller, I think he put that notion in everyone's head in the Dark Knight that you know Jason died and that Batman retired and and uh, you know well, this isn't the last time we're going to see this uh, hit upon by Barron Davis. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, just, just wait later. a couple issues. Yeah, two issues later, and we're back here again, and it's so. Yeah, it's like he he really. I mean, you know, he should have joined the challenges of the unknown. He was living <laughs> on borrowed time. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, one thing I forgot to bring up. This is this is my one other than the the swinging from the Wayne Manor bit. The one gripe I have about the story is how did Batman know that Alvin Kenner was going to be visited by the Scarecrow? I mean, he could guess that Alvin Kenner, the Daredevil stunt driver, would be visited by the Scarecrow. But why would he go to the effort of disguising himself as him until, you know, there, there's just a missing word balloon somewhere that where he said he visited Kenner, he talked to him, and he said, yes, the Scarecrow's been here. And then Batman, you know, said, OK, well, I'm going to replace you. You go away for a couple days and, you know, I'm going to stay here and wait for the Scarecrow to show up or something, because it's just like I, I kept looking for that in the story. Did that jump out at you, or am I just being overly picky? <laughs> it didn't jump out at me. I mean, it's – no, I, well, actually, I take that back. I did kind of notice when they revealed that it was Batman in disguise, I did kind of say, what was the point of all of that? Like, <laughs> I, I always – I mean, it is fun for the sort of reveal, and we get exposition out of it, and it's something that's, again, part of the nature of the comic books. But it always sort of strikes me, it's like, Batman, like – do you need like to catch Scarecrow confessing that he's committing these crimes before you arrest him? Like he's dressed as the Scarecrow, and you're not actually operating like within the law. Like so, it's why? Why did you wait? Why did you give him the time? Like as soon as the Scarecrow walked in, why didn't you jump him? Right. It's yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's always <laughs> just sort of a crazy question of like when Batman like goes undercover for these type of things, like. Are you recording that? Like, is there a recorder here so that you're trying to get admissible evidence of Scarecrow confessing what he's done? But it, yeah, because if not, like, just you don't. That's a, you put a lot of time and effort into that disguise. Unless Batman has always wanted to dress up like Evil Knievel, if that's just something in him that is like, oh, this is my one shot. So. <laughs> yeah, it 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 does. It, you know, I can see if he like say if like Kenner like contacted uh, Commissioner Gordon or Captain Gordon. Captain Gordon in this series and said, look, the Scarecrow's been here. I'm kind of freaked out he's going to come back. And, you know, Batman gets a tip from Gordon. Hey, the Scarecrow was at Kenner's place. And then Batman meets with Kenner and says, you need to disappear for a week. You know, here, you know, be gone. I don't want you getting hurt, you know, because I can see Batman replacing the guy. So the guy's not in danger. But there just needed to be like another line or two of dialogue just to to make that all fit. Because otherwise it's like Gotham City's full of athletes and it's got major, you know, sports teams of every, uh, you know, you know, uh, major league sports teams of every type, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. And, and then, of course, not counting all the daredevil type. You got your, you know, car race, more race car drivers, more stunt people. You know, I, I'm a stunt men are probably there in Gotham City. So why pick this one guy? What if Scarecrow never showed up? Is Batman just going to be Alvin Kenner for a month or something? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he's deep, deep undercover. You know, it's, it just seemed weird. It just there wasn't. 
it didn't uh, the first time I ever noticed it reading this story. It's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's it's the it's the damning side effects of podcasting when you yes. over examine a story. <laughs> uh, but but other than that, I mean, I really I really enjoyed this one. And, and that was just a little that's just a nitpicky thing to, to have fun talking about. But it's uh, it adds a new wrinkle to an old foes gimmick. And it's it puts Batman and Robin through their paces, you could see Batman get out of the death trap, which is always fun. And of course, we're it was a big part of the '60s TV show. So a lot of us growing up, that was uh, a big part of Batman. You know that he got put in these death traps and figured a way out. Usually, it was a pretty goofy way out on the TV show, uh, but this is a pretty good, pretty good way to get out. Now, I don't know if I'd want to try to um, put on a Batman suit and grab air in my cape and breathe it for <laughs> ten minutes and see if I live. But it's it's comic book plausible. You know, it it's maybe not real world plausible, but it's comic book plausible. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's it's Batman plausible. So it's right. Yeah, it it works pretty well. So, uh, of course, now this episode, uh, I mean this issue. Of course, now this issue, at least the hook of it was used by the producers of the new Batman Adventures in their episode Never Fear, uh, which originally aired October first, nineteen ninety seven. And in that one, uh, Scarecrow has developed the same fear-inhibiting gas, but he's there's the added wrinkle of like a self-help guru uh, that is working with the Scarecrow, and Batman comes across the plot. He gets gassed, and Batman gets real reckless yeah. <laughs> and real violent, and and not worrying about killing people and. Uh, and it's interesting because I watched that again last night, and the first thing that really struck me was like, huh, it's Batfleck. Oh, <laughs> He's just doing whatever with abandon and running over people with cars, and, you know, and. <laughs> Which is sad. This was. And Robin is like, you're not yourself. And the great thing about that one is, is that little Robin, Tim Drake, has to, you know, tie a hog tie Batman to keep him from. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what, what did you think of that one? You like that uh, episode? Yeah, I've only seen it once. Like the new Batman Adventures, I never saw them on TV. I never saw them until they came out on DVD, and I liked them for what they were. But for me, there was there was a definite jump, and they didn't affect me the same way that the original animated series episodes did. Um, mm. So I just some of the costumes I did like their re reimaginings, and some of them I didn't. Like, again, like I'm not going to say any of them were bad because I don't think any of them are, but maybe it was just I was at a different time and it, they, it didn't have the same connection for me. I, I mean, the the episode that you're describing, it, it was a good episode. I liked it. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's it, it does have a different feel, I think, to it. It uh, in a ways, it's kind of weird because even though they give him, you know, Batgirl and or Robin in every episode. It's darker. It somehow, yeah. you know, it just it feels darker. It it, it uh, even though the skies are red instead of black, it looks darker. And and uh, Batman's a little more uh, sullen and a little less demonstrative than he was in the the first version. He's like he's gotten older and grumpier. And uh, <laughs> but uh, and the redesigns for the most part, I like. The only one that really jumped out at me that I didn't like was the the Joker redesign. I didn't like at all. So. Uh, he lost his lips. He's got those black eyes. It's just mm. weird looking. I I much preferred the redesign, the re-redesign they used in the Return of the Joker and Justice League afterwards. I like that a lot better. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, 
but we digress. So, uh, so we, are, so are we good on this issue? We have we talked it to death. I think we have. Okay, so we'll take another promo break, and we come back. We'll do your listener feedback. The end of the world is approaching. Soon, the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon, and the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time. The only thing standing in their way is the Justice League. In 2005... Uh, wait a second. Are, are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time. Let's just be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much. Okay, good. Got that. All right. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice. Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults. And now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast and continues into Supermates, the Idol Head of Diabolu podcast, Views from the Longbox, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, the Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn, J.L. May. 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review the League's toughest battle. The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast, located at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Nightcast, episode 8, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Aaron Henley, Alejandro C. Vila, Alexander Osias, Andrew in Belfast, Ange at Dr. Ange70, The Aquaman Shrine, Bill Bear, BK on the Air, Codeman at Beware the Mat Man, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Danny Gonzalez, David Bear Jr., L. Surly Criplo at Surly Cripple, Eric the Viking with J's instead of I's, well, two out of the three. Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Giancarlo Nurco, Greg Arujo, Hill and Clark, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, Jeffrey Brown, Jim Bell, Joshua Graham, Justice's First Dawn, Con L at Bazinga underscore Cal, KSC GSF Podcast, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Mark Danvers, Matches Balone, Max Romero, Phil at Isolated Tops, Pod Dylan, Rianne, Richard Field, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sarah Ramirez, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Treasury Comics, William Bachman, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Over on Facebook, the last episode received likes and shares from Abadaba, Adam Stabelli, Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Charlie Niemeyer, Chip Deese, Comic Book Cover Story, Daniel Doherty, David Ace Gutierrez, DeBeche, Derek Crabb, H. Daniel Reibold, Jack Dower, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kal-El Commandy, 
Kyle Benning, who's on every Fire and Water Network show now, Leslie Trigg III, The Longbox Crusade, Mark Slax, Max Romero, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Prom, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, Sean Strawbridge, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, and Zoom Yukonori. All right, we got some comments on Facebook, including a lengthy message from Kyle Benning. Great episode and great recap of a great issue. It made clearing a foot of snow out of my very long driveway an enjoyable experience this morning. Well, you know, that's that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kyle says, with regards to DC stripping the legacy out of Batman and Superman houses post-crisis, I have to disagree with Chris's assessment that DC had stripped the Batman and Superman houses while it was adding legacy everywhere else. Sure, post-crisis DC's shtick is typically seen as legacy heroes, but that was quite a ways down the road yet from this time. As I tried to articulate in the latest episode of JLI that I recorded with Shag, that aesthetic didn't occur until the early 90s. It wasn't until Mark Wade took over The Flash, the JSA came back after Armageddon 2001, and Robinson's Golden Age and Starman series that DC went into legacy hero mode. In that era, Superman and Batman would have their families filled out and the legacy aspect added to them, just like everyone else. So, yeah, Kyle mentioned that it was your assessment. I think that was actually more of what I was saying than what you were saying. Like, mm, yeah, like, maybe. You made the point that at this time, DC was kind of taking away Batman and Superman's ancillary characters, and I came up with the thing that the post-crisis era is kind of seen as the legacy hero era, and that's what we were doing. And Kyle is just making the point that there was about a five-year gap between when that really started coming into full effect. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, this is again, this is you know, DC's trying to find its its footing after crisis. They don't exactly know what they want to be, or, or you know, I mean, they're they're feeling it out, and eventually they do become uh, more legacy driven. I I can see that, yeah. yeah. And I mean, we see that very very apparently in the Batman books that we are covering that they're still kind of finding their footing. But then Kyle said later on. Also wanted to add, top-notch on the music as always. Greatest use of In the Air Tonight since the Miami Vice TV show. Great work splicing it in there. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I worked really hard on that one. You did. You did a great job on that. And that was uh, that was kind of a little peek behind the curtain. Before we even started this show, I asked Ryan, I said, can we get In the Air Tonight into the Batman Year One <laughs> somewhere? Because I have always had that song. I don't know if I was reading... Uh, I don't think it was the first time I read the first issue, but at some point early on after I got maybe the trade paperback or was rereading it, uh, that song was on the radio, and it just hit me how well that fits in with uh, Batman number 404. And I just I, I begged and pleaded that, that we put – of course, you didn't resist, but at the same time, I'm like, please, please, please do this, please, because yeah, Ryan does all the music and everything. So You did not have to twist my arm. I was like, I love that song. I would be glad to put it in there, and I know exactly how to do it, so uh... – now, the question is, can Ryan use a Phil Collins song for all four parts for Batman Year One? <laughs> Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we got a comment from Kristen Gibson who said, The use of cursive to depict Batman's thoughts continued throughout Legends of the Dark Knight. I always construed it as a kind of Punisher War Journal type thing, like Batman would have the time. Props for another interpretation by you guys. Great episode. Well, uh, you know, that's true. They, they did carry that forward. I think, you know, basically Batman Legends of the Dark Knight owes its very existence to Batman Year One anyway, because everything pretty much took place in Batman Year One. <laughs> in terms of the, the journaling type of thing, and at some point it felt like 
Batman, and I don't know when this started, it felt like it was something in the two, 90s or 2000s, but it felt like Batman had sort of a case log or something, and at some point, I want to say, did Alfred start becoming sort of like the chronicler of Batman's adventures? Like, he was keeping records of all of these? Seems like they've touched on that before. I mean, they even did that back in the, the Silver Age, and, you yeah. know, Alfred would even come up with the uh, imaginary adventures of, you know, Bruce Jr. and Dick as <laughs> Batman... Batman 2 and Robin 2 with the Roman numeral 2s on their uniforms, you know. So, yeah, I think, it, you know, at some point that, yeah, Alfred narrates it. And I, I think part of it, too, is just it's it's a way. This is where comics start pulling away from word from thought balloons, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, the journal caption type uh, devices it takes over and the uh, thought balloon goes away. So, I mean, we got thought balloons in this issue, but... Um, you know, not in not in Batman Year One. We're not getting those. So. Right. Uh, Dan Doherty said, "My two favorite comic book origins of Batman are the Untold Legend of the Batman and Batman Year One. In Year One, I thought it felt a little more realistic that Bruce, deciding to dress as a bat to scare criminals, came as a direct result of his first night out being a complete disaster." Batman Mask of the Phantasm also did a great job of fleshing out this aspect of the origin with their own version of Bruce's first night. Yeah, I remember yes. that when I saw Mask of the Phantasm that it felt like a I mean clearly it was it was intended for children so it couldn't be as bloody as the <laughs> year 1 chapter was, but it was very much similar. Like it's like yeah, and and Batman Begins does the same thing where they play like Batman tries to do his mission and fails until he hooks onto the bat gimmick. They the criminals have to be afraid of him or it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is uh, a similar idea with a lot less hookers. <laughs> 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 Certainly, we could have had some hookers, just not not as many as year one. <laughs> hey, that one episode of New Batman Adventures, uh, or maybe it's in Batman. Maybe it's in Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker, where Batgirl uh, stops two girls that are on a street corner. One of them's dressed like Black Canary, and I think she's asking where Robin is. I think it's Return of the Joker. So there you go. There's your uh, uh, fishnets connection. <laughs> yes. I, Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians sent me a message on uh, Facebook a couple days ago. Uh, he was listening to our episode, our coverage of the first part of year one. And he asked me if, because I, I made the point that I thought Jim Gordon was supposed to be sort of the more sympathetic character between him and Bruce. And mm-hmm. Mike asked sort of if my feelings on Gordon being the more sympathetic of the two had changed recently as a result of my current situation is that my wife is pregnant. And it, it was funny because my, my instant reaction, I told Mike, I was like, no, like I've, I've always thought that Jim Gordon was the more sympathetic, the more human, the more grounded of the two characters. So my thing with Angie being pregnant had nothing to do with my read of this. But then after, like, so I sent him that message right away. I was like, no, no, it really didn't affect me. And then the question wouldn't leave my mind. And I kind of reread the issue after we talked about it and how Gordon keeps having these moments where he's looking around and he's seeing the horror of Gotham City, the corruption of the police, all of these things, and he's he's praying that the pregnancy test comes back negative and he doesn't know how to raise a child in this. And that's, that did actually kind of hit me. And, okay, so... I'm, for our, all of our listeners, we're going to have a, a bit of Ryan indulging in story time and I'm going to peel back even more of the curtain... Um, 
the wife and I, we had been trying to get pregnant for a couple of months. Um, not as long as some people. Like, I know people who have been trying to get pregnant for years, uh, and it's it's very frustrating. It can be heartbreaking. We got we were trying for a couple of months. Um, we got to the point where we were taking ovulation tests, which are little sticks that look just like uh, pregnancy tests, um, to see when was the appropriate time. And I'll never forget, it was the morning of November 6th. Uh, I woke <laughs> up, and it was interesting that Angie was awake before me, and usually I wake up first. Um, but I woke up, she was in the other room, and I went into the bathroom, and there was a stick on the on the thing, and it had the test, and it said it had the thing for positive. I looked at it and thought it was another one of these ovulation tests. So I turn around, and Angie is standing in the doorway smiling at me, and I said, oh, you want to have sex now? (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, no, you fool, we're never going to have sex again, because it was the actual pregnancy test. So so that was that was how we found out and everything. Now, that was November 6th. <laughs> November 8th was the election day. Yeah. And without getting too political, I don't want to turn off any of our listeners. I certainly do some political rants on my other shows. I'm not going to do that right now. Um, I will just say that the election did not go the way that I had hoped. And the next morning, November 9th, um, I... I had a very tough time sleeping that night, uh, just finding out that we were going to have a child. How we, how are we going to be able to raise a child in with, with this new presidential administration when half of the country decided that a man who bragged about molesting women, who made fun of people with disabilities, who lied about everything, that he was going to be in charge? And like, what if what if I had a daughter? Like, what if that's how it was? And no kidding, November 9th, the day after the election, I threw up three times between 5.30 and 8.30 in the morning, like before work. And I, I just, it, I, it terrified me. And I, I just, I didn't know what to do. So when, when Mike asked this question, if, I'm, if I relate to Jim Gordon a little bit more, if I'm a little bit more sympathetic, having had that situation, it's like, you know what, maybe... Maybe yeah. I do understand that those moments of this is a mistake, I can't do this, this is the wrong world to bring a child into. Now, I do not live in Gotham City, and certainly Gordon's is is a sort of heightened reality, but I hadn't thought about it until he asked that question, and then I couldn't stop thinking about it. So, right. anyway, that was me just going on a little personal rant, but uh, yeah, so, so thank you, Mike, you opened uh, that little... Uh, you open that little thing into my my head, and I, I will punish you for that because uh, all these new all these new fears and terrors came to the to the surface. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Anywho, we could probably move on to our our comments that we received on the Fire and Water website, which, as you know, you can always find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, please note that we try to acknowledge every comment that we get. But for the sake of efficiency and expediency, we might truncate or cherry-pick some of the comments. Uh, but we will acknowledge everyone who wrote in. So, uh, Do you want to take the first comment? Sure. Our first comment on the last episode came from Dial C for Comment, who said, I remember when after reading The Dark Knight Returns that year one was advertised on the back of the book. When I checked it out, I remember not liking it as much. It felt too wordy, and it kept changing focus to Gordon. Of course, when I reread it a couple years later, I got what Miller was going for. It definitely feels like an early preview of what he would do with Sin City. The Catwoman bits with her new origin is really a product of its time. 
I'm not that big a fan, but I don't mind it too much. Though I feel it should have probably stayed in this book, but like all other things that get popular, it found its way into the other books. The book is very cinematic, which is probably why so many of the movies cribbed from it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's pretty much just made to be made into a movie anyway. I mean, it, you could you could just straight adapt this, which, of course, the animated movie did. But you could adapt this into a live action movie just straight up. You yeah. Know? So I agree with that. Yeah. Um, our friend Siskoid from Gimme That Star Trek, Oh Hop Moo or Not, and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, all right here on the network, said, of course Gordon is the protagonist, and it was more important to him as a character than it really was for Batman himself. Without Year One, would there be a Gotham TV show? Would there have been a GCPD comic? If you're trying for an urban myth Batman, then you could do a lot worse than show the bat through someone else's eyes. And then he goes on, Catwoman's new origin as a sex worker are part of Miller's interest in film noir and pulp, but it is unfortunately, especially with hindsight. Another trope that was copied and caused damage to many female characters was to put a sexual trauma in their background. Miller, like Moore and Watchmen, was a groundbreaker, but some of that ground they broke needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with everything that you said there. Yeah, me too, yeah. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I love year one. This was a mature look at the origin, and Mazzuchelli's art is perfectly suited for it. It is a noir at its finest. And I think that somehow, with few lines, Mazzuchelli conveys so much. Yeah, that's that's something that, that we're going to get into in our next episode when we talk about Mazzuchelli, is, is just how much his economy of line work is just amazing. How mm-hmm. he, So, I mean, maybe only rivaled by Alex Toth, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so continuing on with, uh, with Dr. Ange. I know it isn't all seen in the first issue, but we see stuff in here which is pulled forward in The Dark Knight Returns. From Sarah to Batman saying, lucky amateur. He says, lucky old man in DKR. They feel like bookends. As a young reader, I love Dark Knight Returns more, but now I find myself rereading year one much more. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I kind of, you know, I, I, I go back to year one a lot more than I do Dark Knight, honestly. Yeah, no, I do. It's... Year, year one for being just a straightforward story, the efficiency in which it's told, it's th- this seems kind of like a put-down, but it's not. It is a simpler read. I think The Dark Knight Returns is, is a bit more challenging. You have to kind of put yourself in the headspace to get all of the things that Miller is trying to do with that story, whereas this one is mostly just a stripped-down, bare-bones crime story that folds out with the origin of a hero, and it's it it's really good. So yeah. Um, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, given how many times creators have gone back to the year one well, has anyone ever told us what Alfred was doing for the twelve years Bruce was away? Given that this is the first time Alfred is the family butler rather than the butler's son who gave up his acting career after Robin came on the scene. Dark Knight school courses? You know <laughs> I love this question and I had this weird moment of like when when Bruce goes to see Alfred, like, for the first time in 12 years, and he's like, how have you been? How has the time been? And we get, like, a Guy Ritchie-style rapid-fire montage cut of just still images of Alfred at a casino, like, Alfred chugging a bottle of Cuervo, Alfred, like, pushing, like, a croupier at the casino, like, Alfred running away, stealing somebody's cat, finally Alfred, like, on his knees with a gun to his head in the middle of a desert, like, all just, like, with some, like, rapid-fire, like, music going on, and it just cuts back to Alfred just saying, it's like, oh, you know, it was a pretty boring decade, or whatever, <laughs> but you get the idea. Alfred has had some weird experiences. <laughs> just, I, I want to see something like that, where it's, like, the untold story of Alfred that's not 
that. Like not nothing like you would actually expect. <laughs> right. Well, there there was a story, and I and I've, and I've commented on Martin's uh, question here. There was a story in uh, one of the Batman annuals. Uh, I can't think of the number off the top of my head now, but from the late '80s, it was the when they were doing those private lives backups. So I think maybe it was like the is that the eighty is that the eighty nine uh, annual? I think yes, uh, maybe. But uh, that fills in what's going on with Alfred. And in fact, Alfred basically when Bruce comes in, he tenders his resignation. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an interesting story. Go check it out. Or wait like uh, three years and we'll cover it. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, other things that Martin mentioned in his message. Chris blew my mind with his observation about the three cover figures making a bat signal. Not seeing it, but well done. If you don't see it, how did it blow your mind? Anyway. Um, I, I love the art, but Commissioner Loeb was a tad overripe in his design, looking like a hairy arse wearing a pair of glasses. Hang on, sorry, art talk next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> save your save your complaints about that for the next issue. Uh, he says, I always hated the bit about Selina being a prosy. It seems to be more about Miller than Batman and Catwoman. Yeah, I can see that, <laughs> especially given what he comes up with later. You know? Right, I guess everything from Sin City and that whole thing and... Uh, David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer of Pod Dylan, wrote in and said, I loved year one. It was heartbreaking and a wonderful cousin to Daredevil Born Again. I think it also cemented Mazzuccelli as the Batman artist for me. It also made me see how vital Gordon was to everything. But the Catwoman as prostitute thing was not something that ever set well with me. It fit tonally, but completely negated the thrill-seeking cat burglar role she filled for so long. I get that Miller was using noir archetypes, but surely he could have treated one of the oldest rogues in Batman's history better than that. I suppose Selina's treatment in The Dark Knight Returns just cements Miller's attitude toward this character. Kind of shameful and a huge black mark on an otherwise amazing miniseries. Yeah, this was a, a popular comment and a, a sort of regular refrain that kept coming up was how many people loved this story but really disagreed with Miller's treatment of Selina Kyle and reimagining her coming basically from the ground up as a as a street level prostitute using that to kind of turn her into the the sex kitten catwoman type of character and and that's something that will come up in you know later issues when we get to that point and i i do kind of want to i do kind of want to address the, the question of whether or not catwoman even needed to be in batman year one or if miller just felt like he needed a female in the story because there wasn't any and there really wasn't there wasn't room in this story for a love story, like with a Julie Madison type of character uh, that wasn't really fitting into the type of Bruce Wayne that he was creating in the story. So it might have just been somebody said, dude, you have to have a woman in this story. Um, they make out half the population. Can you have one person, <laughs> one woman in the story? <laughs> but I agree, and I wish there might have been a way to like later on retcon the fact that maybe she was undercover too. Maybe she wasn't really a prostitute. Maybe she was still that thrill-seeking cat burglar adventure, but for whatever reason was kind of slumming it that night that she met Bruce uh, or, or doing something to kind of explain that that wasn't necessarily her origin. That was just something that she was doing maybe to you know piss off her dad or something like that. Which would, <laughs> once later on, when they sort of retcon that she might be the illegitimate daughter of Carmine Falcone, that could also have some implications. But anyway. Right. It seems like there was, I mean, I, I think I brought that up last time. It seems like there was something somewhere, and I don't know if it was it was an actual story or if it was a who's who page or a, 
you know, DC encyclopedia entry or something that that seemed like it was trying to steer it into that direction that she was like basically acting as a prostitute and wasn't actually a prostitute. Of course, if you do the deed of <laughs> then then you know you're still you're still got uh, some questions there but uh it seems like there's something somewhere maybe i'm just making it up and maybe it was me trying to in my head canon retconning it out but if somebody knows where that's from write in and tell us cuz i have no idea i got i mean i followed catwoman i didn't follow her ongoing series overly closely after the first several issues so i'm not exactly sure but yeah if you know let us know Later, David came back and said, damn it, that rise of Oracle as Detective Batman as Bruiser Parallel was insightful. I don't know why Ryan doesn't like me, <laughs> but I can admit when he's made a really good point. I wonder if the writers amped Tim Drake's detective skills to make up for Batman, too. <laughs> well, for first, to, for David's question of why I don't like him, um, I don't need a reason. Um, <laughs> now, uh, but to, to the second point... Uh, about Tim Drake being ramped up as more of a detective, I do think that is part of it. And I'm going to make a sort of controversial statement on this. Um, I am not the biggest fan of Chuck Dixon's tenure on Batman. I don't, yeah, gasp, you should. This podcast is over. <laughs> All right. Now, to clarify, I don't hate it. I just don't love it to the degree that everybody else seems to. And one of the reasons is... I think Dixon made all of Batman's supporting cast more interesting than Batman during the mm. time that he's writing all these books. He makes he you know look at what he he launches the the Tim Drake Robin series. He launches the Nightwing series with Dick. He's got Birds of Prey going on. Barbara, Dick, Tim, they all have their own stories and they're all developing these own things. Meanwhile, while he's developing all of the ancillary characters, what is happening to Bruce Wayne? What is happening to Batman? He's becoming more aloof. He's becoming more kind of stone-faced, more mechanical. And that can be done really well. I mean, if you look at the Batman in the Justice League animated series and Justice League Unlimited, it's very much in the Chuck Dixon mold. That sort of slightly paranoid, doesn't trust anybody, doesn't express his emotions at all. That can be done really, really well but I think it works well in that context of being part of a team where you have other characters that you can relate to, that you can sympathize with. But in the own, his own books, Dixon didn't make Batman the, the unbeatable Bat-God, but he kind of put him in position to become that way. I don't know. Again, like, I don't hate Dixon's run. I think he did some really good stories. But I stopped reading Batman for a while during his time, and part of it was I felt like... Batman was being sacrificed while he was propping up Robin and Nightwing and Oracle. So, mm. well, I can I can kind of see that. I, I don't don't entirely agree with it, but I can see where you're coming from. I I think part of it was, for the most part, uh, when Dixon was writing Detective, he did have it was the Batman and Robin title mm -hmm. uh, when he was when he was writing it. So he did have Tim to play off on, and of course, you know, although Dixon didn't create Tim. He pretty much created the Tim that everybody knows. I mean, he basically gave him the the personality that everybody thinks of with with Tim Drake, right? Uh, I mean, because he wrote the yeah, Chris Claremont he wrote the miniseries. Yeah. Chris Claremont didn't create Wolverine, but everything that we like about Wolverine was created during Chris Claremont's time on X Men. So, yeah, exactly, same kind of thing. So, I I, I see what you're saying, and I, but I think that was I kind of feel like part of that was just the editorial direction from Denny O'Neill because that was during the 
even though I really love the the Dixon era, that was during the the run where they came up with the the urban legend bit about Batman that nobody really knew it existed, which I think is pretty boneheaded. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I I'll just be upfront and tell you that I think it's ridiculous in the DC universe that that uh, you know that that people don't know he exists and, he, and and yet he was a member of like every version of the Justice League. Okay, whatever. But you know, it's uh, it's it's something uh, that so, you can get away with in the first maybe two years of Batman's existence. Like by the time yeah. he's got a sidekick, it's yeah, it's hard to believe that. But yeah, well, now that we know, this is the last episode of Batman Nightcast <laughs> because Ryan doesn't like Chuck Dixon's run on Batman. So there, so no more Batman Year One. You people are just gonna have to suck it up. Not ah, <laughs> oh, we had a good run. We did, we did, we did. We almost made it. To <laughs> hey, we lasted. Digits. We lasted nine episodes. That's better than some, I guess. So. <laughs> Uh, Scott X, who recently appeared on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, left a very lengthy but very insightful comment, and sorry, Scott, we're only going to read some of it here, but uh, he says, I was interested in your discussion about the fact that there is no supervillain in this story. Very true. Though maybe not an overt supervillain, I always thought of Gotham City itself as the villain of this piece. The culture of the city is one of crime and corruption, and that overriding culture in many ways permeates the Batman mythos to this day. Changing or correcting that culture is, I think, one of Batman's ongoing motivations. In fact, it might be said that culture, along with maybe Batman himself, was what bred the local supervillains. Because of how ingrained in the stories its dysfunction has become, Gotham City may be the one villain Batman would never be allowed to truly defeat, at least from a pure story perspective, not marketing or sales, long live the Joker there. Um, <laughs> and I agree with that. I, I've sort of said, and uh, again, I'm going to make another one of those controversial statements that you and I disagree with, is I don't like that we know the name of the guy who killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. I don't like mm. the, the Joe Chill thing. Now, I admit, when you tell the story of Joe Chill and what happens to him, you get an amazing story and, and that aftermath. And I will, I will not say that that story isn't great, but maybe that's one of those things that I would like to see on an Earth 2 or a parallel Earth, where there's, there's one version of Batman's story where we get, where he has that closure with Joe Chill and we find out who killed his parents because that story is so good. And maybe that can be the same one where Bruce Wayne does have a happy ending with Selina Kyle or happy enough. And they do have their daughter, the Huntress. Maybe that should be the earth two version, but in my sort of headcanon, it's always been better to think that there is no name. There is no real identity for the guy who killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. It's just the sort of high concept crime took them from Bruce. And that's what his war is. It's a war on crime that can never end. It can never end. And because yeah. because I do think once he finds out that it's Joe Chill, with that sense of closure, I think that fundamentally changes what his mission will be. It has to, just on a personal scale. So, I don't know. That's, uh, yeah, I, I agree with, with Scott's position here, that if there is a real villain of Batman Year One, it's Gotham City. And it's the corruption of yeah. the system. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That, that. that was a good observation. And, you know, it's it's really – it's interesting because, you know, I always stick to – it's got to be Joe Chill because – I think because the untold legend of the Batman, honestly, that's where I first, you know, saw Batman's origin. I think it was the first time I saw Batman's origin, period. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they even – they retold the story of how he caught up to Joe Chill and, and uh, you know, he revealed his identity and then Joe Chill got gunned down by the – his men for creating Batman and it's such a poetic ending. It's just fantastic. Uh, it's one of Bill Finger's best stories. But I think though I, I get your point because I have a problem 
with I know the Leylands recently covered like the Court of Owls and all that uh, Scott Snyder stuff. I have a problem with all that business about oh it's a it's a secret society that's been manipulating Gotham City all these years and and they were behind the Waynes murder maybe and it's you know I, I don't like that I like no 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 it was a random street crime but yeah. you know it's a random but for me it's a random street crime by this one random criminal but. I can see your point of it being completely random, that it's not this one guy. It's it's a nameless – it's almost like the city grew a, a being to come out of the darkness and, and, and kill the Waynes, you know, just because it produced these type of criminals, you know, this, this sick city that just keeps producing these awful people, you know, basically. Um, On a symbolic so, yeah, level. I, I, I yeah, I get your point. Uh, yeah. On the symbolic level, yeah. that's what I think. That's what I, I would go for. And again – I never want to deny people the untold legend of the Batman story. That's such a good story. It's such a fun reveal. But can that be the Earth 2 origin? Um, <laughs> maybe so. Well, technically it is too, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, going on with uh, more of what Scott was saying, being in 80s mode when looking at the very last panel on page 20 where Bruce is sitting in his chair looking at the bust of his father just before the bat flies in, I couldn't help but be reminded of the Max Hell blown away guy advertisement. <laughs> I, I didn't, I never thought of that, but one, once he mentioned it, I was like, wow, that is, that would be such a weird, like a combination of the two. The bat flaps its wings and this Bruce's hair all blows backwards and, and you know the bell goes blowing off the table and he's all shaking. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Scott says, my question, why was the Batman Year One story not published in a separate miniseries? As much as I loved this story, it just seemed a struggle to fit in with the other stories that were published in Detective and Batman since the crisis up to that point. The updated Superman had the Man of Steel, a separate miniseries, as the launching pad. The updating of Wonder Woman was in her own ongoing series, but it started with a new number one. This story was great, but I kind of feel like it would have been less confusing, characterization-wise, if Detective and Batman had finished up their story arcs, then been put on hold for a couple of months while Batman Year One was published as a miniseries. From there, move forward with Detective and Batman telling stories that fit in with the new origin and with a more definitive and unified direction of characterization. Hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. Honestly, I really had no such issues at the time. I think probably the the reason is 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 that Denny O'Neill didn't have enough <laughs> stories to fill Batman. Honestly, I think that that might be part of it. You know, I mean, it seemed like he was struggling to to figure out what to do with the with the Batman title, mm-hmm. and so. You know, this project was like, hey, I don't have to worry about Batman for four months. You know, (laughs) so I I could be wrong. But I mean, you know, it it, it, based on what we've covered, I can kind of see that. So I do. Yeah, I wonder about it's we've definitely felt like there are some editorial growing pains like and maybe Denny O'Neill didn't have as much time. Maybe he was kind of thrown in the deep end and there wasn't as much of an organizing structure the way there was around the Superman titles. It could have been the fact that. Yeah, I mean, we we talked like why wasn't th- why didn't this one come out right after Crisis? Maybe this one was late. Uh, maybe they were having like deadline problems because we mentioned he brought Max Allen Collins on board because he needed a story to come, like to basically fill in the gap between uh, the the Legends tie-in and Year One. Like from his first letter, it kind of sounded like he only needed one issue, and then he ended up needing two. Maybe there were just deadline things. Maybe Miller or Mazzuchelli, one of them was late, and Batman Year One was just like it was coming out later, so it kind of threw everything off. I, I don't know. I mean, it 
it certainly would have made more sense to release this one as its own miniseries almost at the same time that you're doing Man of Steel. Like, imagine if these had come out the exact same time, the same months, uh, and then right. and then relaunch Batman and Detective with new issue ones like you did with Superman. Um, I, I mean, it's just... Yeah, of course, as, I mean, as Scott like rightly points out, it's in hindsight, of course, that seems like the obvious thing to do, but there must have been reasons that they just didn't do it, so... Right, yeah, I mean, it, that, of course, that was Marv Wolfman's original, that was what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He wanted everything to restart with number one, and, and uh, you know, they're like, oh, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, that, that'd be a good question to to just point blank ask Denny O'Neill at some point. He probably has been asked it before, but sure. I think it's kind of neat, though, that, that it is in the comic. I don't know, it makes it feel, in a way, because it's not off on its own miniseries, it makes it feel more legit, like it's not... It, you know, it, this is in continuity. You know, that's, uh, I mean, there's no denying it. If it's in the regular series, it's not some, it's like when they did Superman Birthright, uh, you know, that was the new origin of Superman, or was it the new origin of Superman? And, yeah, because it, so it was so easily dismissed after that. Yeah. Yeah, it was like almost instantaneously replaced with Superman's Secret Origin that Jeff Johns and, and Gary Frank did. So, mm-hmm. you know, so that was often its own miniseries and then just instantly forgotten. So there you go. Yeah. So. Uh, the Irredeemable Shag congratulated us on doing justice to the first part of year one. Or maybe that's justice. Uh, <laughs> then Shag left a few notes about the story. To this day, when I see cough drops with eucalyptus, I thank Commissioner Loeb. Shiver. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Wayne kicking through a tree and punching through bricks. What? Effective visual, but what? Uh, I added the what that, you know, but he, he said what, but I added that way. Because I just imagine Shag saying what that way. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, I kind of like that, though. I thought that that's like. I, I love that. I, I don't know if I even brought that up. I think we got rolling with so many other points in the conversation. But the fact that the visual is him chopping through a stack of bricks and he's like, I'm not ready. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, dude, you are so ready. You know, it's <laughs> like you just ain't got the hook yet, man. You know, you kicked uh, a Slinger. tree down, dude. How are you not ready to fight crime? But it's good. That exact pose of that kick comes back up in <laughs> issue number three of that. Yeah. We'll bring that up. Yeah, so that's I think that's awesome. That's an awesome callback. Uh, Selena's prostitute never set well with me, apparently with no one, uh, but probably more because my age when I read this. Now I'm not really bothered by the reimagining of Selena at all. Well, it's because we know Shag's a dirty, dirty person. <laughs> <laughs> the image of Bruce's bloody hand and the bell freaked me out when I was younger, maybe because it represented just how hurt Bruce was and how close he was to death still gets me. Yeah, that's that, it's. I mean, it's very powerful that he's, you know, the guy's willing to just die if he can't, you know, do his do his job right, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Shaq continues. You mentioned how Frank Miller ramped up the bat crashing through the window. Originally, just flew through the window, but here it crashes through the window. Batman's origin first appeared in Detective Comics number thirty-three, November nineteen thirty-nine. Doctor Midnight's origin first appeared in All American Comics number twenty-five, April nineteen forty-one. While Batman's origin was published first. Dr. Midnight's origin featured an owl crashing through the window rather than flying in. I wonder if Miller was influenced by Dr. Midnight's origin. Midnight was a ripoff of Batman, so it would be like a snake eating its own tail. Sort of like Rorschach was a ripoff of The Question, but The Question eventually became a ripoff of Rorschach. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good point. We actually talked about this because Shag was on the Secret Origins podcast when we talked about Dr. Midnight. And we, we sort of talked about that difference of, like, originally in the old Golden Age stories, the bat just flew through the window. It was an open window. 
and mm-hmm. Dr. Midnight's origin had an owl literally crashing, breaking through the glass and everything. It's, and it is much more dramatic. And I have no idea if Frank Miller ever gave Dr. Midnight a thought, if that was in anywhere, or if that might have been a suggestion from somebody else. But it does just, it does seem more dramatic for the sake of, an, you know, an, what is ostensibly an action-adventure comic book character to give them the most dramatic and most visually striking origin to have the owl, or in this case the bat, break through the glass to come into the room. Yeah, it, it is more effective. Um, yep, it definitely is. Yeah. And, I was thinking about this while I was editing the last episode. It didn't come to me while we were talking about it, but as I was editing, like, there might be a place for a really kind of interesting story. And I'm hesitant to suggest this because it might suggest that Batman is a little bit crazier than I want him to be. And for some listeners, for some Batman fans, they do think he's crazy and they do kind of like that about the character. But thinking about the end of the first chapter, when Bruce is bleeding to death and he's at this moment of existential crisis where he, if he can't fight crime, if he can't do this war, he doesn't want to go on living and the bat comes crashing through, and the bat is his inspiration. The bat gives him this, you know, reason to go on a, a way of channeling what he needs to do, and a, a way of physically manifesting that. And I had this weird, crazy idea of what if that was all a hallucination brought upon by blood loss? Like, <laughs> because, like, going back to Bruce's childhood trauma of falling into the cave and being spooked by the bats. What if somehow some weird synapse burst in his brain as he's bleeding to death, and that kind of like comes to him, that, that memory, and, and he remembers that fear? And you could just sort of reveal that by the next day when Alfred is cleaning up the blood, Alfred notices that there is no broken glass. There is no broken window. There is no bat in the room. Like, that never happened. Mm-hmm. It's just something that Bruce saw. I don't know. I don't think it necessarily changes anything. It was just kind of like a, a funny idea that I had of like, what if that was all just a hallucination because he's bleeding out? Yeah, it's, you know, I, that thought's crossed my mind before. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd ever want to see him actually do it because I don't like my Batman like crazy. Right. But, um, you know, but, but yeah, I can see that. And then you've got the, you're talking about Secret Origins, the Man Bat origin in that <laughs> title yes. says that it's that. It's that bat that Kirk Langstrom had that flew yes. through the window. It postulates that, which is like, no, no, no. Yes, That's just too- both there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And yeah, and, it was, and the reason it did that was because its sonar was, uh, like, messed up or whatever. Like, he had, like, caused some experience that the bat was effectively blind. That's why it broke through the window. It's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> you don't need to tie these two characters' origins, and you don't need to ruin that moment, so... You know, one thing that's interesting is I don't think we really brought this up is the whole he mentions that he when he's sitting there that he was scared by the bat uh, when he was young. But you don't get that flashback. You have to have read The Dark Knight Returns to see the scene where Bruce falls into the bat cave. Right. Uh, You know, and of course, we've all every movie is even (laughs) Batman Forever had him falling into the cave. You know, so, I mean, there's been like three different movie origins now that have shown Batman falling into the cave. Of course, he didn't fly up in the other two like he did in BBS. But, you know, (laughs) uh, while the audience is like, what the hell? I mean, literally. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of which. Shag continues, wow, the color palette in the collected edition really does seem very Zack (laughs) Snyder-like. 
Uh, and he goes on. I'm glad you touched on year one being embedded within the ongoing Batman series as opposed to Man of Steel and the relaunch of Wonder Woman. Nowadays, that's almost impossible to believe that DC published it this way. However, it certainly was a great way to boost Batman's monthly sales figures. Yeah, you know, that might be another thing, too. It's You know, it's interesting. I was reading just reading an article uh, in Back Issue magazine, which we talked about. The back issue magazine last time had an interview with uh, Mike W. Barr on Batman. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got a it's got an interview uh, uh, with uh, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz and Doug Minch on Moon Knight. Then yep. they talk about Doug Minch mentions that even though Moon Knight was a direct only title, according to him, when he took over writing Batman and Detective, Moon Knight was selling more comics, more issues per month than Batman was. Wow. <laughs> on the newsstand and at comic shops. So apparently Batman sales were in pretty bad shape back in the 80s before all this. So <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's that's weird because I always figured sales kept it afloat. Sales kept it from being renumbered the way Wonder Woman and Superman were. I assumed that yeah. Batman was doing better than them, and that's why DC was like, no, we don't want to renumber. We don't want to turn off our long-term fans. We don't want to like – ah, so – Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, maybe the sales were a whole lot better than Superman and Wonder Woman's books, but they still weren't as good as a low-level Marvel <laughs> character who was only on direct the mar- direct wow. market. Yeah, that I, that just blew my mind. But you yeah. know, that I mean, that's that that was, and you know, the guy went from one book to the next. I would think he would know, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, Shad continues. Any plans to discuss the animated movie of this story? Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, we talked about it. I would like to. I. I don't know if I want to dedicate a whole episode to it or if we might bring it up on when we cover the fourth chapter, uh, which yeah. uh, probably – I mean that will be like <laughs> probably like a three-hour episode. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I definitely think we should talk about it, whether we do a whole episode to it or if we just incorporate it into another one of our regular shows. Uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll make that decision. But yeah, we, we talked about that before. Like, I, I definitely think we should, we should address it in, in detail. So. Yeah, me too. Now I got to brag. This is Shaggin. Now I got to brag. One of the first collected editions I ever got was the first printing of Year One hardcover. It was a gift from my mother. She knew I liked Dark Knight Returns, another early trade purchase, and bought this for me based upon the comic shop owner's recommendation. She thought the twelve ninety five cover price was insanely high, but bought it anyway. Then in the mid-90s, I met Frank Miller and got him to sign it, one of my treasured comic collections. And this is from the man who claims to have went through his Batman phase. <laughs> <laughs> and and un- yeah, Shag posted images of the uh, his hardcover edition. He does have it signed by Frank Miller. It looks really really good. Um, mm-hmm. He mentions that the twelve ninety nine cover price of that. I mean, that's like a price of like a normal trade paperback today. And it just reminded me that they released a absolute edition of Batman Year One, which I was kind of thinking. I was like, how how could they do it? like in the, with like the slipcase? It's only four regular sized issues. But apparently, the Absolute Edition has two different versions of Year One. It has the recolored version that was out with like the trades, and the original colored version from the floppy issues. But mm. it is still the same story. You just get two copies of the story, but it costs you a hundred dollars because it's got the Absolute oversized slipcase. So uh. there's there's one of those versions that I remember reading an interview with David Mazzuchelli where. I can't remember what it was, but there's one of those editions that he's not happy with the production on it or something. There's something about it that he didn't like the way they that it was printed or or something. I can't remember what it was, but 
there's something in the back of my head that says one of those versions. And I've still got my original trade paperback that and in my floppy issue, so I've never rebought it. But yeah, there's something. If I can find that where that's at, I'll I'll bring that up and on another chapter. So. Uh, we got a comment from Diablo Frank coming out of the past because he he mentioned that he didn't like Batman enough to stick with us on every episode, but uh, I did kind of figure he would probably pop up for the year one stuff. And he mentioned to Shag, he's like, I've never seen that year one hardcover, and I'd like to have it much more than the stupid Chip Kid number I bought a few years ago with the useless goddamn die-cut slipcase that has only survived because that edition has never left a bookshelf to be read. Frank says, I remember the Joker and Complete Miller hardcovers turning up at cons in the early to mid-90s for about a Benjamin and a Grant, too rich for me, and I was past my Batman phase, soon to be recognized by the American Psychiatric Association. Hopefully you'll, <laughs> hopefully you'll catch D-Mass at APE or something someday. <laughs> uh, and then this led to uh, another sort of short conversation between Frank, between David A. Gutierrez, and you, Chris, that basically could be summed up as we all love night court <laughs> <laughs> i smell a fire and water presents coming up I, we, <laughs> let's just get it out of our system come on lewis said never a fan of miller's dominatrix prostitute escort madam but i really dug selena originating below the poverty line and made this criminal and anti-hero a lot more sympathetic than if she were just a socialite in for the thrill and complimented her relationship with Batman, the knight who came from Gotham's nobility. It also appealed to the Highlander series Geek and Me, where warrior and honor code Ray's Duncan McLeod would often be vexed by the thieving Amanda who originated from the dregs of the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the Highlander TV show. I never thought we'd have that connection. So. <laughs> <sighs> There you go. Yeah. Uh, Rob Kelly from like half of the podcasts on this network said, Excellent episode. Maybe my favorite so far. Maybe that's because you're tackling what's probably one of the top five best Batman stories ever done. I never thought about how the handwriting styles of Bruce and Gordon reflect their different upbringings. Nice observation, Chris. It also never occurred to me that this is a Batman comic without Batman. While I still feel that The Dark Knight Returns holds up as just as much of a masterpiece, Year One has none of the downsides of that work. It's quite literally perfect. It's weird that Miller retired after this. I didn't know that, but I trust Ryan. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> like I said, we never need to talk about All-Star Batman and Robin, or The Dark Knight Strikes Back, or The Dark Knight 3. Yeah, no, no, just that never happened. <laughs> uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said looking back I guess Miller's revision on Selena's origin probably stemmed from his work on the character in The Dark Knight Returns where she was the owner of an escort agency indeed the concentration of Gordon's viewpoint which I enjoyed greatly as it really fleshed out the character of James Gordon and we got a more rounded competent character as opposed to someone whose main function was to light the bat signal see the Lego Batman movie that's me adding that uh, probably grew from his work in The Dark Knight Returns also I had meant to ask you both previously whether you had considered covering The Dark Knight Returns in your podcast, given that it influenced a lot of what subsequent post-crisis Bat writers did with Batman. And as Ryan pointed out, it was the only work Miller ever did on Batman, so it would be good to cover another Miller story. 
great show as always. You continue to hit it out of the park, and I look forward to the next show. You know, maybe in hindsight, maybe we should have done Dark Knight Returns first. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it almost seems like that everybody knows that book, and it's like maybe that was just too – from us just starting to cover the Dark Knight Returns, you know, I don't know. It just maybe it just seemed like blasphemy for us to cover it to start out with. I don't know. <laughs> that was sort of my thinking about it was that – we started with Batman 400, which was already a triple-sized issue. It was, a, it was a big story that felt like a sort of culmination, and it was a good transition. If we had started with The Dark Knight Returns, I mean, that w- our first four episodes would have just been like mammoth four-hour conversations, and it would have been... It, it just it also, it just thematically, it wasn't... I, I mean, I get how that sort of shaped the the idea of what Batman would be, but yes, I feel like everybody kind of knows that story, and... I, like I couldn't wrestle like having our show start off with that one. It just felt like it was too big, too unwieldy, and it would have. It just. It also just wasn't the stories that I wanted to talk about. So maybe mm-hmm. someday we'll sort of retroactively go back to it. Um, I'm actually. I'm surprised more. I'm surprised like that hasn't been the subject of more podcasts. Just sort of random drop-ins, but oh. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of weird. Like some of the big, the big, big event comics don't get covered it's almost like everybody's kind of afraid to touch them in a way or something you know or they i mean they do get they do get covered and they do get but not as often as you would think right right. uh our final comment on the website from brian linton who said whenever i hear in the air tonight i think of a david copperfield tv special that i watched over and over again on vhs as a kid in which he performs a magic trick to this song David Copperfield makes me think of another great stage magician, Zatanna. Of course, Zatanna makes me think of Ryan and his Power of Fishnets podcast, which makes me think of Ryan's other podcasts, especially Nightcast. A very clever song choice indeed. Yep, it's all part of a vicious circle to lure you back here. (laughs) That's right. And Fishnets make you think of Aquaman, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So I guess that is all that's in the comment section for now for the last episode. Uh, Come back in two weeks, and we will discuss Batman number 405, which is Chapter 2 of Batman Year One, where we actually get Batman. He's on the cover. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) Not that anybody was really complaining that there was no Batman. and In fact, many people didn't even realize there was no Batman. Uh, So... Uh, but yeah, Batman shows up, uh, the, the debut of Batman in costume in Batman number 405. I'm excited. Very excited. Uh, you know, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> I'm the one who has to synopsize it, so I'm a little bit less excited. But no, yeah, I'm, I'm very pumped. I'm very excited. We got so much love for the last one that I think this is, uh, like I keep saying, we're in a really good spot with these books, and I'm having a great time on the show. Me too. Me too. So thanks, everybody, for writing in and commenting it's it's great to get all the feedback we really appreciate it and uh it's just uh, i'm just having a ball at this Son of the rain, we can be like they are. Come on, baby, don't 
Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Valentine is done. Here for the-